0: This podcast contains violent adult themes and is not suitable for younger audiences.
1: Guys were very cold and lifeless, just black. I mean, the guy was a true psychopath. She was left in a creek bed. He treats females like shattles. He doesn't see them as being human. He was an absolute creeper, a guy that would go out on his own and pick vulnerable
0: people. She was out in the open. She was naked. He's, he's done something evil. Her threat had been cut.
1: You're in a cell with a psychopath. you a wild animal loose on society.
0: He has no remorse. I'm Michelle Gately, and this is Predator. When we think of the people who catch serial killers, it's usually units of armed police or maybe one of those charismatic television detectives. We don't think of little girls... Yet nine-year-old Kira Steinhardt did stop a killer. Her death revealed a twisted and sadistic person had been living among us, preying on vulnerable women who had been vanishing from our streets. But Kira isn't the only unlikely hero of this story. In this episode, I'll introduce you to the man who spent two years in prison secretly recording his conversations with a killer to find answers about what happened to those missing women. First, though, I want to take you back to nine months before Kira was killed, to mid-1998, when the first strange disappearance was reported to Rockhampton Police. The first woman to disappear was 14-year-old Natasha Ryan. She was last seen walking her dog on the 12th of July 1998 near her home in the suburb of Frenchville. That's in North Rockhampton too, the next suburb over from Bursica where the Steinhardt family lived. Natasha had run away from home before, but she hadn't stayed away long. This time there seemed to be no indication that she'd planned to leave. Police and the SES conducted several searches around Rockhampton, and her parents Jenny and Robert made public pleas for her safe return. But there was no trace of Natasha. The second woman to disappear was Julie Turner. She was a 39-year-old mother and grandmother originally from Townsville. Her daughter and her friends later described her as full of energy, with never a bad word to say about anyone. Julie was last seen leaving a nightclub called Airport Liberties in Rockhampton CBD on the 28th of December, 1998. She withdrew $50 from an ATM a few minutes before midnight and was never seen again. The third woman who vanished was Beverly Lego. Beverly was 36 years old and had moved to Rockhampton from Gympie, which is about five hours south. That's where her parents, Arthur and Doris, lived. Sadly, her mother passed away a few years ago, but her father, Arthur, still lives around there. I called him as we researched this podcast, and although he gave me his blessing to write about Beverly, he didn't want to be involved. Beverly was last seen at a Bank of Queensland branch in Rockhampton CBD around 10:30 a.m. on the 1st of March 1999. The bank manager was busy and Beverly was told to come back in an hour, but never returned for that appointment. The next day, police found a handbag near a boat ramp on the Fitzroy River, just across the bridge from the CBD. The bag had been tossed in the river and was weighed down with rocks. They later realised it was Beverly's. I'm going to bring my editor, Fraser Pearce, back into the conversation again, since these disappearances were linked together in a Morning Bulletin article about the fourth missing woman during the search for Kira later in 1999.
1: Police didn't want to alarm the community too much, but I think they shared their concerns. And then, of course, it was after that initial reporting of the two missing women that, that Sylvia... Benedetti went
0: missing. The fourth woman to disappear was Sylvia Benedetti. She was 19 years old and was last seen talking to a man on the 17th of April. That was five days before Kira was abducted. Sylvia's disappearance from the same area as Julie and Beverly was enough of a coincidence for The Morning Bulletin to run a story linking the three women with the missing teenager Natasha. What they couldn't publish was the thing three of the missing women had in common they'd been known to a man called Lenny, who used to hang around the CBD picking up cigarette butts. Julie was from the small town of Mount Morgan, where Fraser had lived for a while after his release from prison in 1997. Before she went missing, Julie told friends she was sharing a flat with a man called Lenny, who she said would give her a better life. Mount Morgan is a short drive from Rockhampton, and it was here Fraser also met Beverly. She was friends with Christine Rate. That was fraser's girlfriend at the time he murdered kira remember sylvia was seen talking to a man before she disappeared according to her boyfriend who reported her missing that man was known as lenny the loon there wasn't a defined link with natasha but she was a student at north rockhampton high school in robinson street the school oval is directly opposite the vacant block of land where kira was attacked police played down the serial killer speculation in the media But Detective Senior Sergeant Carl Burgoyne, who was one of the lead detectives on Kira's case, said police were paying close attention to the four missing persons cases. You do get people that that intentionally make themselves missing um, for various reasons. Uh, Domestic violence is a big one, um, where they just flee relationships and don't want to be contacted, drop off the grid. Um, But the initial uh, missing people were the subject of active investigations. In fact, there was one dedicated invest- investigator tasked with um, looking into them. And it was uh, it was really the Kira Steinhardt matter that sort of was the the square peg that fit into the square hole that went, hang on a minute, these are all related and no way it went from there. A few days after that speculative piece in the morning bulletin about a possible serial killer, Kira's body was found, and Rockhampton was again consumed by grief over the murder of a young child. There was no more public word about the other missing women until a month later, in June 1999. That's when construction workers demolishing an old pub in Rockhampton's CBD made a horrifying discovery. The Queensland Hotel had been abandoned for four years, and was in the process of being demolished when workers found bloodstains in an empty room upstairs. Neil Allen was the man who made the grim discovery. He told the Morning Bulletin reporters at the time that there was a fair mess of blood on the walls and the floor. Police were still tight-lipped about what had been found at the scene and imposed a media ban on officers after inaccurate reports on statewide TV news. However, a few days after the initial report, the morning bulletin revealed information from an anonymous source saying that clothing had been found in a refrigerator at the derelict pub and that had been linked to one of the missing women. Then as Kira's murder trial came closer, the public became consumed by that. But the investigation was continuing behind the scenes. Rockhampton detectives handed the case over to the homicide squad in Brisbane. They had to bide their time. Even once Fraser was sentenced to life in prison for Kira's murder, that's where our unlikely hero Alan Quinn comes in.
1: I was um, I was incarcerated for fraud, mm-hmm. and um, and I was in the prison, uh, Morton Prison, and uh, I ran into Lenny the first day. He came over to talk to me, and he said, "I remember you were coming out of prison years ago in the '70s," and I said, "Okay." I said, uh, I I remember you now. And then he started telling me about that. Oh, He said, I've been charged with the killing of that little girl in Rockhampton, Kira Steinhardt. And I straight away thought, I knew the story because I I was on the news. It was big news, had been news for a few months.
0: Alan was a con man. He'd been convicted and jailed for ripping off millions of dollars from banks over a period of 30 years. He was in the same prison as Fraser, Morton Correctional Centre near Brisbane. Alan lives in Sydney now and spoke to me over the phone about the years he spent sharing a cell with a serial killer.
1: I um, instantly thought, you know, my first reaction was to, I thought, oh, well, I don't like this guy at all, you know, what he's done. And, and then I, I just calmed myself down and said to myself, well, is he talking to me? What, well, you know, they, I knew there was a lot of other people missing in the area. And I thought, well, why don't I um, engage him in conversation and see what I can find out, you know? Well, after a few months, I started speaking to him. He used to walk the yard with me, you know, for hours up and down the the exercise yard.
0: Alan gained Fraser's trust, speaking to him for months about the other missing women around Rockhampton until he finally started letting little things slip. From the beginning, Alan had planned to work with Brisbane homicide detectives who were looking into the disappearances of Natasha, Julie, Beverly, and Sylvia. The detectives came to the prison and Alan would go to the hospital wing where he'd meet them in secret. Eventually, Fraser trusted Alan enough to share a cell with him. Alan told Fraser he was writing a book to explain why he was allowed a typewriter in his cell, but that typewriter had been bugged by police.
1: So I eventually uh, got... Lenny to come over to to share my cell with me some nights. He was on the top bunk and I was on the bottom. And as I sat there, we'd sit right in front of the word processor and he'd be telling me all the stories of how he murdered and how he killed these people. And um, it was uh, being recorded. He would give me maps and he'd give me fake maps and then he'd tell me information that wasn't true. I had lots of information out of him and I went to him one day and I said to him, I said, look, Lenny, um, I think, I, I think you've, got to show, you've got to tell me the truth, what's going on here. I said, I think I can help you. I said, you've always didn't want to go to prison, but you're going to go to prison for a long, long time. And so I said, if I was you, I would prefer to be a patient than a prisoner.
0: Although Fraser spent his life brutalising women, he was deliberate in those he targeted. Fraser preyed on vulnerable people, those who weren't as strong as him. But Alan explains his demeanour soon changed in prison, where, as a child killer, he was a target.
1: He was under threat. His life was um, under constant threat 24 hours a day there. The guy was an absolute coward, you know. Um, That's what I found. And you stand up to him and he'd uh, he'd be a coward straight away. So, you know, that's... uh, when he froze it so he was just one ball of stress uh, and he smoked and smoked and smoked all day to try and get rid of the stress and it probably didn't go away and and eventually killed him because he he had a heart attack and uh, i think that his his heart would have been absolutely wrecked because of um, smoking and whatever his lungs the whole lot
0: Razor thought that being declared mentally unfit would somehow protect him from the threat of the general prison population. So Alan exploited this, saying he could be declared mentally unfit if he revealed the full scale of his crimes.
1: I got that into his head and he eventually started telling me the stories and piecing together the exact proof of what was happening, how he he killed all the girls.
0: Until this point, Alan had been secretly recording Fraser and handing over the information to police in undercover meetings, but when Fraser started talking to Alan about his desire to be declared mentally unfit, Alan came up with a new plan. He convinced Fraser that he could be a messenger to the police, and Fraser never found out that he'd already been sharing information with them for months. Alan told Fraser he couldn't keep lying and backtracking on information. Half the things Fraser had come up with while Alan was secretly informing on him had turned out to be false, but there were nuggets of truth in what he was telling Alan. Alan suggested to Fraser that he take police to the bodies. Eventually, Fraser agreed.
1: They got us out of our cells at about five o'clock in the morning, undercover, went up to the uh, hospital, sat in the little room up there, and when the sergeant came in, Sergeant Hickey started, said, good morning, Lenny, Lenny had a few choice words for him and I thought, oh no, he's going to fail. You know, uh, I I just hope, you know, uh, he goes ahead with what he's doing. So anyway, we eventually went out of the prison, got onto the, they took us up in the premier's um, plane to Rockhampton. And I spoke to him all the way up there so he wouldn't change his mind, took up all the conversation with him and he took him to the, the sites where he murdered all the victims. So he took them to uh, quite a number of sites and they found the, the skeletal remains of these victims.
0: This was a particularly disturbing trait of Fraser's. If you remember in previous episodes, I told you Kira's naked body was also found out in the open. None of the other women had been buried either. Alan said this was because Fraser was lazy. But there were more sinister implications in his decision to keep his victims out in the open. Several people I spoke to while researching this podcast suggested that Fraser had returned to the bodies of his victims time and time again, although there was no forensic evidence to suggest that he interfered with their bodies. There was some witness testimony that Fraser took a woman, her 13-year-old daughter, swimming on the 10th of April 1999 at a creek less than 20 metres from where Beverly's body was later found. Fraser left the mother and daughter swimming alone for some time after walking off in the direction of the body.
1: Uh, so anyway, um, they found the four. There were three of them, but they already had uh, the little girl clearest sight, huh? So what happened is that Sasha Ryan was still outstanding. I said to the officer, "I said, look, can you bring us some lunch?" take us to a little clearing so we can have a little walk together and you can frown it, it doesn't matter. So um, they did that. So they handcuffed me and Lenny together and I said, look, you're going to give us time to walk up and down the clearing here, we can have lunch and then you and I can walk together like we're going up and down the yard. So I walked with him and spoke to him. I said, look, you've got to give him the remains of Natasha Ryan. I said, she's still outstanding, what do you do with her? And then he, he said to me on that day, he said, I didn't kill her. I don't even know anything about her. He said, um, you know, I never, never even, I don't even know. And this went on for about half an hour. So I gave up on it. And I said to the coppers, I said, look, I don't think he did kill Ryan. And he Ryan. I said, I see no reason at all why he's been charged with the killing of a nine-year-old. So it wouldn't matter if he, you know, he admits to another child. He's already been, you know, signaled out because he already killed the child.
0: Eventually, though, Fraser confessed to Natasha's murder too. He drew detailed maps of where he had buried her, but police could never find her body. I'll return to this in the next episode when discussing the sensational events which unfolded during Fraser's second trial. For now, we'll return to Alan. Did you ever fear for your life um, as as a prison informant? Me? No, no, no,
1: no. You can be a... Look, look, Christmas... Think this way and informant is the worst person in prison you could ever see, but there is well, no, not the worst worst is a, a child killer, child rapist, they are the worst. And I couldn't see any prisoner attacking anybody that uh, found information about a rapist and uh, a person who's killed a the child. There's a moral thing, you see, and you know, and that is this guy was a everybody was the biggest scumbag who had ever worked, you know, um, the earth.
0: Alan has no doubt there were many more people Fraser murdered who will never be identified. Fraser was very careful to pick women who might not be missed, or whose disappearance wouldn't be suspicious to authorities.
1: If anyone believes that Leonard Fraser is only, you know, the uh, only killed people in Rockhampton, well... No, he spoke to me day after night after night and day after day about killing people all across the country. And he to- he even told me that he's been back to see the places, but there's been dual carriageways built there, you know, big highways. So they're probably buried under hundreds of tonnes of concrete. But he's killed people everywhere, in parks in Sydney, and he's got away with it all his life. He's probably, you know, probably another 10 or 12 victims you told me about so, you know he was. That's all he did for. He was an absolute creep, a, a guy that would go out on his own and pick vulnerable people, vulnerable people, and the people that had problems in life. They may they may have drug problems. Every one of a lot of most of them had problems. You know, not saying they were all drug addicts or or, or things like that, but you know people can uh, smoke marijuana and. They had problems with probably their social lives and things like this, and he saw he, he got their confidence in some of them, and, and you know, and and he just took advantage of it and killed them, raped and killed them. And to me, he's the worst person on earth. I mean, that's all he did. He'd, he'd roam around the beaches, he'd go up the park, the walking tracks, looking for looking for girls on their own going for a walk, you know, and uh, tourists and things like this. He used to tell me. He'd drive out on the highways hoping he'd find a girl hitchhiking out of town and uh, he'd go to caravan parks of the night and look through windows to see if there's females on their own. This is what he'd do. He was just an absolute creep, you know.
0: I asked Alan how he dealt with this conflict, about how he could talk to someone whose actions and whose life repulsed him in such a way
1: if he saw that you were revolted by what he said, which I actually was all the time, it made me sick, um, but you couldn't show it, because if you show it, and, you, and he read it on your face, then he would stop talking. He would get scared, uh, and he'd stop talking, see? So you had to play that part. I had to play that part where I had to listen to all this. But but there were times in the cell when he was sitting next to me, that I had to hold to my chair, because even the police told me, they said, Alan, I thought you were gonna, uh, you know, uh, hit him. My my hands were that, holding the chair that tight, they were white, because when he was telling me about how he dealt with and killed um, Kira Steinhardt, the nine-year-old, and I just felt like, you know, kicking the you-know-what out of him, and, um, but I had to hold the chair to stop his doing it, and take a breath and make a cup of coffee, sit down and change the subject for a a little while and then come back to it later on. That's how I dealt with all that. That's it, you know, that was it. But as I said, he was on the top bunk and you're in a cell with a psychopath. The guy was a a psychopath. I mean, imagine being in a cell. You can't get out. There's no windows, there's no, you know, and you can't get out. And you're in that confined space, but you've got to go to sleep. I used to take my razor, and I'd wrap it in a towel, and I'd uh, actually put it under my mattress so that he couldn't get a hold of it, thinking he's going to slip my throat in the middle of the night.
0: Although Alan had to gain Fraser's trust, there were also a few occasions when he stood up to him. That's when he realised just how cowardly Fraser could be when confronted by someone stronger than him.
1: I actually had a uh, had a bit of a scuffle with him in the yard once, and I was a very fit person, you know, and um, I was big, he was big, but he wasn't as big as me, and I was very fit and strong, and um, he uh, said something to me, and um, I just picked him up off the, and, and threw him against this steel door, and he hit the door with the force that the officer, the prison officer up the other end, looked around, thought, well, you know, and uh, I went up, to him, he said, don't worry, he said, I saw what you did, but the camera didn't catch her anyway, so don't, just forget about it.
0: Alan found it confronting to be locked up with people who were serving time for violent crimes, but his personal quest to catch Fraser became a way to get through each day. Alan wanted Fraser to be punished, but he also wanted to help the families he saw on television pleading for their loved ones to come home.
1: Uh, I still think of the night of all the people that are missing, you know, from on the highway from Sydney to Rockhampton. You know, uh, it's gone missing, and all the this is what drove me, you know, gave me the drive to do it. Uh, people would be going to bed, mothers and fathers and, you know, siblings going to bed and thinking, what's happened to my loved one? And just thinking, is there any other time that this loved one's going to hear footsteps coming up the driveway and up the steps and opening the door and say, I'm home. So I thought, I've got to find this out. So I did that. I didn't care about working for police or, or doing it. that wasn't... Drive behind it because I wouldn't do nothing for them, you know, at that stage. I'd had trouble with my life and I didn't owe them anything, but I did. I owed myself something, so I did this for the victims actually. So these people, you know, they. My heart went out to them.
0: That time in prison now feels like another life for Alan, who has since reformed and is now a presenter on radio and a voice artist.
1: That life's gone. I have to get that out of my mind. If you're going to dwell on it, you're going to uh, send yourself into depression.
0: But we need to dwell on it for at least a little while because what Alan did in prison can't be underestimated. He gave a final voice to women who had their lives tragically taken from them. I wish I could tell you more about Julie and Beverly and Sylvia. I wish I could tell you what their favourite things were or their hobbies. But the very fact that it's so hard to find this information, to find tributes to these women, is why I needed to tell their story again, in depth this time, or as much depth as I could find. I needed to admit that we failed these women. Back then, we failed them because our legal system didn't have the mechanisms to keep a predator off the streets. And we failed them because the women who capture the hearts and grief of a nation tend to be a certain kind of victim. We see their smiling faces plastered over our television screens and on social media. Jill Maher, Stephanie Scott, Alison Baden-Clay. They were attractive, middle class and white. Of course they deserved to be mourned and remembered, but so did Julie, Beverly and Sylvia. We failed these women not just because we let their stories slip from our memory, but because they were never fully told in the first place. And we forgot that Cura is the reason we know who killed these women. As a journalist, I've written my fair share of obituaries and tributes. I understand not every family wants to share their grief with the public. It's an honour for someone to invite us into their lives during the depths of grief. And I respect every family's right to privacy. But at the very least, I want you to remember these women and remember their names. Julie Turner, 39 years old. Beverly Lego, 36 years old. Sylvia Benedetti, 19 years old. Kira Steinhardt, 9 years old. There is one person I haven't mentioned, and that's because pretty soon everyone would know Natasha Ryan's name. Predator is a production of The Morning Bulletin, a News Corp publication. It's written by me, Michelle Gately, and recorded and produced by Alan Reneker. Thanks goes to Caroline Graham from Bond University and Astrid Edwards from Bad Producer Productions for consultation and advice throughout. Margaret Wood provided transcription services. Our thanks also to Eddie Cowie, Detective Senior Sergeant Carl Burgoyne, Alan Quinn, Wayne Petherick, Fraser Pierce and especially Teresa Steinhardt, who also provided audio of Kira for the project. For full music credits, see the show notes. You can find all the episodes of this podcast on Apple iTunes, or listen and look through exclusive photo galleries and stories at themorningbulletin.com.au.